We're next to chapter 30 right now, and um, so uh, in this chapter here, actually, there's, there's something that made a big impression on me as a young Christian about 30 years ago in terms of just kind of getting something that was really fundamental, so I'm, I'm excited about uh, sharing that in, in the lesson today. So we're, we're, we're in that... T- Last several lessons we've been talking about the tabernacle. So God is, God is is explaining to Moses uh, the setup for the tabernacle, the instructions for the priests, and, and and all these things. So we're getting to the end of that part of the scriptures here. Hebrews uh, eight nine ten explains the significance of the tabernacle. That this is a scale model of what's taking place in the heavenly realm and what will be taking place in the future. So we see Jesus the high priest. We see ourselves as priests there. We see the body of Christ as the, the veil of the temple. Um, we see baptism. We see prayer. We see so many different things. We see the angels that are involved in, in what's going on. So uh, the significance in, on all the details of the story here. And now we're, we're wrapping up in Exodus chapter 30. And because of the way we took things topically and in order, looking at things in the Holy of Holies, looking at things in the, in the, 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 uh, in the, in the holy place, and then looking at things in the courtyard. We've already looked at the golden altar, which is described here, and we've looked at the bronze labor, the washing basin. So uh, we looked at the, the, the altar of incense, the golden altar in Exodus 30 verses 1 to 10, and the bronze laver in Exodus 30, 17 to 21. So that leaves for us um, the the uh, story of the temple tax in Exodus 30 verses 11 to 16, and then some other things after that. So I want to focus on that part of Exodus 30, which we haven't covered so far. So Exodus 30, let's start with uh, verse 11. So then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for his soul to the Lord, so there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a drachma according to the drachma of the sanctuary. A drachma is 20 obols. The half drachma shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than a half drachma when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for your souls. You shall take the money of the offering of the children of Israel and give it for the service of the tabernacle of testimony that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for your souls. You may probably think, well, what in the world does that have to do with anything in in our own lives or in in the New Testament? I was going to pass over it and started thinking about it and asking myself a few questions. Uh, I'm a visual person. I like to to visualize things. I want to think, okay, what is... Uh, what is this uh, half a drachma that he's talking about? In most translations that are based on the Hebrew text, it will say half shekel. It will say half shekel according to the sanctuary's shekel. So shekel is a uh, is a, a unit of weight, 
And in this case, it's talking about, uh, you know, a lot of times money, like the British pound, was a, was a, a weight of, of uh, silver. In this case, a shekel is a weight of silver. It's a, uh, and there was a standard of the tabernacle or the sanctuary, a standard of weight applied to that for, for a silver coin. And uh, in the, I just read from the Orthodox Study Bible, it said half of a drachma. And actually, I don't know why the Orthodox Study Bible translates it that way, because what it actually says is half of a double drachma, didrachma. So that's, it's a... Uh, 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 so other translations will say that, or uh, half half shekel from the Hebrew. So um, this is uh, also we take a look. This is this is touched on again Exodus thirty nine, where I think the the significance of this is becomes a little clearer for those who are trying to follow this technically, and actually will become significant when we get to a New Testament connection here. Exodus thirty nine, starting in verse two. The offering of silver from the numbered men of the congregation was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, one drachma per head being half a shekel according to the holy shekel. For everyone surveyed in the tally from 20 years old and up to the number of 603,550. The hundred talents of silver were used to cast the 100 capitals of the tabernacle and the capitals of the veil, 100 capitals to the 100 talents, a talent to a capital. So this was a the head tax, silver, and it's men who were over the age of 20. So it says here uh, that, well, first of all, the, the, you know, what is, what is a, uh, a shekel? Um, Okay, a half shekel would be about the same as a, uh, you think of a, of a U.S. coinage, a silver quarter. So if you think about the size of a quarter, that's about a, that's roughly a half shekel. So a half shekel would be, uh, uh, let's see, half shekel might be something, the, um, uh, I think a shekel was less than half of an ounce of silver, so a half shekel would be uh, like a quarter of an ounce of silver. It might be worth, I don't know, silver $26 an ounce right now, so that might be worth uh, um, you know, $5 or something like that uh, in, in U.S. currency. So uh, every man over the age of 20 paid the same amount. So this was only for men, only for the age of 20. And it says that it's it's tied into a, the census. And so, you know, well, what, what census are they talking about? What's this all about? And you see what they did with the silver. It went into construction of parts of the temple, the things that were made out of silver. Uh, a few things here. Every person paid the same amount. So this wasn't an income tax. This was a flat head tax. So the poorest person paid the half shekel, and the richest person paid the half shekel. It was the same exact amount for every person. And perhaps the reason for that, I think, well, that's not fair. That's a lot of money for a poor person, but that's nothing for a rich person. Well, it says here that it, it was um, 
Uh, it was based on, it says, it's, it's, it's a ransom for your soul to make atonement for your soul. So it was the same amount for every single person because it was tied into a ransom. So again, the idea that the ransom for a rich person's soul and a poor person's soul is exactly worth as much. Um, every soul has the same value in the eyes of God as, as every other soul does. And the word that's used, ransom, here, uh, well, this is the second place in the Septuagint that is used, the first place we encountered it in Exodus 21. So get, get an idea, because this word is very important in the New Testament, uh, to, to get an idea visually of what this means in Exodus chapter 21, verse 28, it says, If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull shall surely be stoned, and his flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the bull shall be acquitted. But if the bull tended to gore in times past, and it was made known to its owner, but he did not keep it confined and killed a man or woman, the bull shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. So, see, you know, if you imagine somebody... We don't have bulls around here, but some people have pit bulls, okay? They got these vicious, <laughs> I'm sorry, some people think pit bulls are wonderful little, little dogs, but they have a bad reputation, pit bulls, around here. So if you have a pit bull and it has a tendency to maul children who come to the door and it does this, then, uh, you know, the, the idea would be that not only the animal would be held responsible, but the owner would be held responsible, too, because you should know better, uh, and, and so it says here that uh, so, you, so the owner would be killed. And then it says, But if a sum of money is imposed on him, then he shall pay the amount imposed so as to redeem his life. So the man who owned the, the, the bull who was goring other people says, All right, you're have to pay the death sentence. But the, the injured party says, Well, if you pay me $10,000, then I'll let you keep your life. And so he's redeeming his life. This is a picture of what it means to redeem. The person's redeeming their life with a payment. And this is the, so the same word that's used for, they're, you're, they're paying this half shekel silver tax to redeem their life, their soul from destruction. This is the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 20. We read that during the Lord's Supper, where Jesus said, Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's the same same exact word in Greek, Matthew 20, verses 26 to 28. So it's helpful for me if I can see in another context what this word means. The picture, I think the picture of the person who's been sentenced to death and he's he's allowed to make a payment or the people who are, uh, the census is going to be taken to redeem the price of their souls. So it says that the Lord would do this. I never noticed before reading through this. It says the Lord would, would, would they had to make this tax payment so there would be no plague when they numbered their men. So, uh, and what's that make you think of? It makes me, makes me think of the story of David. Remember when David numbered the men and he wasn't supposed to? He took a census. Um, uh, and here God tells him to take a census, and that's, that's in the book of Numbers, but 
In 1 Chronicles 21, David got into big trouble by taking an authorized, an unauthorized census of all the people. So this, this census that he's talking about here, um, it was alluded to in Exodus 30, uh, 39, the passage we just read a few minutes ago, but uh, it's also talked about in the beginning of the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is called the book of Numbers because it starts off with a census that's taken a numbering of the people. And this is the census that he's referring to. So just to get a feel for uh, feel for what has in, in Numbers chapter 1, the story starts off about this census of the people. To give you a feel for what that's all about. Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of testimony on the first day of the second month in the second year after they came out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel according to their families, uh, by their fathers' houses, and according to the number of names of the head count, every male from 20 years old and above, all who go out with the army of Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their army. So this is... This is like a military census. They want, to, they want to number how many fighting men do we have. So that's why it's men only, and that's why it's above the age of 20. That's when the Israelite men would, would enter the military. So this is a, it's kind of a military census that's taken. Uh, and so this is when they take up the tax. And this is also, you can tell here, it says that in the, the first day of the second month of the second year after they came out of the land of Egypt. So there's, this is still while the people are encamped at Mount Sinai before they break camp and, 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 and head uh, up closer to the, the promised land. So, uh, so, so this is during that period of time. Uh, now, this head tax here is, from what I'm reading, a one-time thing. They're using it to, to uh, create the silver. They're, they're taking the silver and they're melting it down to make some of the silver articles in the tabernacle. So this is a one-time thing. However, later on it appears that this comes back as sort of an annual tax going forward for the support of the temple. Nehemiah chapter 10, when they rebuild the temple um, and, and rebuild Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, it talks about, verse 32, about uh, uh, restoring this annual tax on on the men to be uh, something to support the temple. And actually, this also is, shows up in the story of Jesus. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 17. It's a little, it's a little backdrop, a little background for something that shows up in the story of hey, Matthew's account story of Jesus. Let's read Matthew 17, verse 24. Now, when they come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, yes. When he come into his house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom did the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish, the first fish that comes up. When you've opened his mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me 
and for you. And the word that's, ran, that's translated here in the New King James Temple Tax is actually didrachma. It's, it's the double drachma. This is the same, the same word that we, we see in the first story. So who, pays the, who pays the didrachma tax? Who pays the half shekel tax? And uh, in the New American Standard, it renders it that way. It just says, who pays the, the two drachma tax? And so uh, there's the story of Peter goes and um, he casts a hook into the sea and the fish that comes out, there's a coin, which is exactly the right amount to pay the tax of two people. So it's equivalent to four drachma, the, the coin that comes out of the mouth of the fish. So the point that Jesus is making is he says he's basically tax exempt. All right. So he, as the son, doesn't have to pay the tax to the father, but just is just so we don't offend them, we'll pay the tax anyway, but we really don't have to. So he's not he's not uh, paying it out of his own means. The Lord is providing it through the mouth of a fish. Now, let's think about the original reason for this half shekel tax in the first place, the temple tax. The, the temple tax, the purpose of the temple tax was for an atonement or a ransom. So why would Jesus need to pay an atonement or ransom? He doesn't need to pay for himself, certainly, and he is the ransom. He is the atonement. He is the one who fulfills this. He's the one who, who paid for himself, he paid for Peter and for all of us, ultimately anyway. So perhaps that's another reason why he feels like he doesn't have to pay this tax. He's the son, and he is the uh, he doesn't hasn't committed any sin. He doesn't need atonement or ransom for himself necessarily. So uh, let, let's continue in Exodus chapter thirty, <coughs> verse twenty-two. There are two, two similar stories here. One has to do with the anointing oil. This is the special perfumed oil that they use in anointing the priests and the high priest. And the other one is the formula for the special incense that they burn on the golden altar. So let's, let's uh, I'm going to read both of these together and then um, I've got some questions for you that we'll work through together related to this. Starting verse 22. Furthermore, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take also, also take for yourself aromatic spices, the flower of costly myrrh, 500 shekels worth, and fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250, and 250 shekels of sweet-smelling calamus, and 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. You shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an oil compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of testimony and the ark of the tabernacle of testimony and the table of all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of the whole burnt offerings with all its utensils and the table and all its utensils and the labor and its base. You shall sanctify them so they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so they may minister to me as priests. 
You shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on a man's flesh, nor shall you make any like it according to its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Now, verse 34, he talks about the incense. Similarly, And Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stactate and ancha, and sweet galbanum, and pure frankincense. There shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make these of these perfumed incense a compound according to the art of the perfumer, mixed, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine, and you shall put some of it before the testimonies in the tabernacle of testimony, where I'll make myself known to you. It shall be a most holy incense to you. You shall not make any for yourselves according to this composition. It shall be to you a holy thing for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. So, um, special instructions. This is fragrant oil. It's costly. Uh, the ingredients are all specified. The amounts of the ingredients made according to the art of perfumer, similar instructions for the sacred incense to be burned in the tabernacle. So it's very, God's very specific about make it exactly this way. And then he closes each statement with basically a curse. He says, anybody who dares to not, not even, not just use this oil or this perfume, but any who wants to follow the same recipe, anyone who tries to make incense according to this formula or fragrant oil according to this formula for their own use will be cut off from his people, be basically cast out, cut out from the assembly, cut off from, from God and the people of God, from, out from the community. So, a rather severe punishment. I mean, I'm just kind of imagining that the, the, the priest comes home from a day of working in the temple, and and his wife says, "Wow, what's that nice smell on you that you have there?" And he says, "Oh, I've been, you know, it's, it's burning, burning incense uh, all evening there, and I just came home from that, and and it's kind of it's kind of infused itself into my clothes." And she says, "Wow, I love the smell of that." Anyway that you could sneak a little into the house to burn it around the house. We can get rid of that, that old stale, musty odor in the house that we've got here. Uh, or it's the same thing. After he's anointed, he comes back and he, you know, he's got the perfumed oil. Boy, that smells really good. You can, you know, could, you, could you put that on like a little aftershave or a little cologne, something like that? <laughs> you smell great when you, when, you, when you have that oil on you. And uh, you, know, don't, you don't have to use the stuff in the temple. Just... I mean, we, ha we know what the formula is. It's right here in the Law of Moses. Can't we just make some ourselves just like it and use it around the house so we can anoint ourselves and our skin will feel good and we'll smell good? Can't we do that? And, and what, what's her husband going to say? Uh, if, we, if we do that, we're going to get kicked out. <laughs> Perish the thought. Don't even think about that. Now, you like the smell of it, great. But we can't do that. God has insisted. He said, if I do that... I will be banished from the community. I'll be cut off 
from our people. And uh, so uh, the, the two lessons to me from these two very similar stories, the, the accounts for the perfume, the perfumed oil of anointing, and also for the incense, uh, the two lessons that I see here, What first one is, what does it mean for something to be holy? And this is of tremendous significance in the New Testament. The word holy appears a lot, but what does it really mean? And this, this helps me. So what does it mean to be holy is the first question. And then the second question related to that, what is the consequence of treating something that God considers holy in a profane or common way? Of basically desecrating something, using it for, for, for common use. What's, what's, the, what's the consequence of that? So, and I think this story here is to teach us that lesson. So, the first thing, what does it mean to be holy? Well, it says you can't use this oil for your personal use because it's holy. It can only be, it's reserved for God alone. The, the perfume. And the incense. You want to you want to burn incense in your house, some some regular incense that you want to cook up on your own. Nothing wrong with that. But it says this particular one is set apart for the Lord's use only. So <clears throat> this helps me to get a, a, a practical picture in my mind. What does it mean something's holy? It means it's set apart for God. Very simple. It's set apart for God and for God only. It's not for profane. Or, or, or common use. And then, the, the obvious answer to the second question is, what's the consequence of treating something that God says is holy in a profane way? The answer is, you do that at your own destruction, being cut off from God and his people. So God's very serious. He's teaching us a lesson about holiness, what it means to be holy, and what happens if we, if we treat something as holy in a profane way. So, There's so many passages in the Bible that talk about holiness in the New Testament. But but there there are some great ones in the Old Testament also. Um, I want to start off with, uh, let's go back to Exodus 19. We'll look at a couple of passages in the Old Testament, a few in the New Testament, talk about holiness. And let's just think about practically what does this mean, what we learn about holiness here if we apply this. In uh, Exodus 19... It's a very famous passage. Peter, Peter uh, basically quotes it talking about the Christians, but God first uses it in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai when the Jews are gathered together <coughs> before the Lord descends on Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, verse 3, The Lord went up to the mountain of God, and God called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a special people for me above all nations. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a royal priesthood and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the children of Israel. So this is God's desire for the people is that they will be a holy, that they'll be a holy nation. So what does that mean? A holy nation means they're not like all the other nations around. They are set apart. They're reserved for God. 
They're different. So, so this, is, this is God's vision for what he wanted the, the Jews to be like. And he says, if you want to be, to be a holy people, you'll be my holy people if you keep my covenant and if you heed my voice. Of course, they didn't. But he says, that this is what it's going to take to be my holy people. This is the vision that I have for you. All the earth is mine, but you're going to be a holy people. It's like the anointing oil or, or the incense. They're, they're special. They're, they're, set, they're set apart. They're reserved uh, solely for God. Let's turn to Isaiah 35. This is a uh, beautiful picture that touches on this. Isaiah 35 talks about the, the, the spiritual landscape as being like a desert. So this is the way that God views the nations. They're a desert. And um, Peter says in Acts 2, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. That's the way God sees the spiritual condition of the world. But this is... Isaiah 35 is a very hopeful passage because it's talking about in this wasteland, in this spiritual desert, in the, in, in the future, there's going to be water. There's going to be springs of water. There's going to be blossoming. There's, there are great things that are going to happen in the future. And he's using this kind of imagery about what's going to happen in the wasteland. Isaiah 35, verse 1, Be glad, you thirsty desert, and rejoice exceedingly, and let the desert blossom as a lily. The desert places of the Jordan shall blossom abundantly and rejoice exceedingly. The glory of Lebanon and the honor of Carmel shall be given to it. My people shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Be strong, you relaxed hands and feeble knees. Be comforted, you faint-hearted. Be strong, do not fear. Behold, our God renders judgment and will render it. He will come and save us. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall hear. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the dumb will speak clearly. For water shall birth forest in the desert. And the valley in the thirsty land. The waterless desert shall become meadows. And the thirsty land springs of water. There will be gladness of birds. A habitation of reeds and marshes. A pure way shall be there. And it shall be called a holy way, or in some translations, a way of holiness or a highway of holiness. No unclean man shall pass through there, neither shall there be an unclean way there. But those dispersed shall walk in it, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous animal go up on it nor at all be found there. But the redeemed shall walk in it, and those gathered by the Lord shall return and come to Zion with gladness, with everlasting gladness over their head. For praise and exceeding joy will be on their head, and gladness shall possess them. Pain, sorrow, and sighing fled away. I mean, when Jesus talks about um, the way or the narrow way, is he talking about the same thing here? He says that there will be a way in the future that the redeemed will walk on. And he describes this as in the middle of, in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of the desert. 
There will be a holy way, a pure way, and the redeemed shall walk on it and they will be protected and they won't wander away and they won't be prey to the wild animals. So this is a a very hopeful <coughs> portrait of the future. And so this is this is God's describing what he's going to do. He's going to provide a holy way that all the redeemed will walk on. Uh, those who have been dispersed. I think about passages in the New Testament. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 13, Peter says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully on the graces that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Which is, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a phrase that appears throughout the book of Leviticus in the law of Moses. Verse 17, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So this, this is the picture. He says that uh, Peter says, just as God who called us is holy, we must be holy in all of our conduct. He's calling us to be holy, to live holy lives, not conforming to the lusts of the old way of life. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Well, the word holy isn't in this passage. This is this is what it's talking about in, in other words. Let's let's Second Corinthians six verse fourteen. He's talking about the same subject. He says, "Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial?" Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is a uh, beautiful passage here. And I think if we, if we grasp this concept that God wants us to be a separate people, a holy people, uh, a people of the light. And he says, 
We are the temple of the living God. He's giving us various pictures of who we are and what we are. And he's saying, well, if you understand this, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What does the temple of God have to do with, with idols? And he says, that's why, says, come out from them and be separate. Don't touch what is unclean. We have to cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirits. This is... This is way beyond anything that could ever be reduced to a list of rules. It's calling us to be a holy people that are living lives that are set apart for God. And this is the, this, with this understanding, this is the motivation for getting rid of all the filth and, and keeping ourselves separate from the world. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Susan Adams said that they were before they were looking at a, a movie account of the life of John Wesley. Is that right? Earlier this week? And, yesterday, uh, actually. Right now. Okay, yesterday. Even even closer. So uh, this, is, this is the verse that we're about to read. Uh, John Wesley said was the most unpopular verse in all of the New Testament. So, and, <laughs> and after thinking about it, you will, will, will know why, too. Uh, starting in verse 12. He says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. This, kind of, this actually this kind of reminds me of the, uh, the language in Isaiah 35. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That's the verse right there, verse 14. I pursue peace with all people and a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So no one will see the Lord without holiness. Very unpopular verse in John Wesley's day, and it hasn't gotten much more popular since that time. So it's very popular today as well. Continuing, verse 15, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. And by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. You know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. This is a, this is a we, we need to learn from the example of Esau, who was a profane man. We can't follow in his footsteps, living for pleasure and polluting ourselves with the things of this world and becoming defiled by that. Um, John Wesley, I'm going to read a, a quote from Wesley here. This is I, I read this years ago and uh, dug it out of the archives here because I think it's so good. So this is from a, uh, uh, a short address, Holiness is Not Legalism, by John Wesley. And he, 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 he starts with this verse from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. He says, Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Nothing under heaven can be more sure than this, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And though heaven and earth may pass away, yet his word shall not pass away. As well, therefore, we might, might God fall from heaven as his word fall to the ground. No one, 
who is not saved from sin here can be saved from hell hereafter. No one can see the kingdom of God above unless the kingdom of God be in him below. Whoever will reign with Christ in heaven must have Christ reigning in him on earth. And yet as sure as this is, and as clearly as this is taught in every part of Holy Scripture among all the truths of God, there's probably none which is received less by men. Yes, professing Christians invariably invent one way or another to get to heaven without holiness. In the place of holiness, some have substituted penances, pilgrimages, praying to saints and angels. Thousands of professing Christians have no doubt but that by a diligent use of these things, without any holiness at all, they shall see the Lord in glory. However, Protestants will not be satisfied in that manner. They're convinced that whoever leans on such things leans on the staff of a broken reed. Yet thousands of such Protestants also think they too will see God without holiness. How? Why? By doing no harm, generally doing good, going to church and receiving the sacraments. Many thousands are content with this, believing they are on the high road to heaven. Yet that is not much better than the hopes of the first group. However, other Protestants recognize that such a nominal Christianity is not sufficient. They correctly say that such a religion does not stand on the right foundation. However, they go on to say, Christ has already accomplished and suffered everything for us. They say his righteousness is imputed to us. Therefore, we need have none of our own. Since there is so much righteousness and holiness in him, there needs to be none in us. In fact, they claim that to think we have any holiness or to desire or seek any holiness is to renounce Christ. That from the beginning to the end of salvation, all is in Christ, nothing is in man. And that those who teach otherwise are preachers of legalism and know nothing of the gospel. What evasion? What has Satan done? He's persuaded the very men who received it to turn the grace of God into licentiousness. That's what it says in Jude 4. This is indeed a blow at the root, the root of all holiness, of all true religion. The whole design of Christ's death was to destroy the works of the devil. But now this is overthrown by one stroke. So this is, and he, he goes on, he goes on from there. So this is a uh, uh, scathing denunciation. He says, without holiness, no one will see, will see the Lord. Nobody wants to deal with this. People want to invent all these other ways that they can get to heaven. Just be a nice religious person, go to church. Believe in Jesus, all his holiness is going to take care of it. And that's not what Peter's talking about. He says you need to be holy. You need to be holy people. You need to put the ways of the world aside. So just a few <coughs> closing thoughts in connection with this. This is just basically, so this is a one-point lesson, is be holy. That uh, the holy means that we need to be live lives that are set apart for God, just like we see the definition of holiness from the way that it's used in Exodus chapter 30, living lives that are set apart for God. They're not common. They're not polluted by the things of the world. We can't reduce this to a list of rules saying, you know, 
you got to have your skirt so many inches below your knee or you can't have this electronic device in your house or that electronic device. You can't do that. You can't reduce it to that. This is way beyond that. And we need to be prepared to confront believers who teach otherwise, who teach that you don't really need to live holy lives. People who say, no, you people don't understand the grace of God. Or there's people who say, Jesus did it all for us. That's why we, the good news is we don't have to live holy lives. Scriptures teach without holiness we will not see God. And that God from the beginning has wanted a holy people, people who were walking on the way of holiness in the way that they live. And as far as the accusation of you people are legalists, well, um, we need to take a good look at that charge. If any, people accuse us of being legalists, well, maybe we are. I mean, let, let, let's take a good, hard look at that. That doesn't mean we don't want to be living holy lives. If we're being legalistic and, and trying to reduce the commands of God to a bunch of external rules and look down on other people, we're, we can fall into the same trap that the Pharisees, many of the Pharisees fell into. So we don't want to do that. But we should take... Jesus' words, seriously, we need to, he told the Pharisees, you need to clean out the inside of the cup and the dish. You need to deal with the sins in your own heart and your own lives first. You need to focus on the most important commandments to love God and others with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I encourage everyone this week, take inventory of your own hearts, your lives, your time, what your mind is occupied with, and what you're doing in life. And ask yourself, is your life something? Is your body the temple of the Holy Spirit? Is your life something that is set apart for God and not polluted by the world? Because that's what the Christian life is all about. Without holiness, no one will see God. And holiness means being simply means being set apart for God. And, and I keep, for years, I've kept that picture of the, the fragrant oil that the, the, uh, the wife wants her husband to bring home or the, or the, or the incense that they want to re- recreate in the house. Say, no, you can't do this. This is, this is something that is set apart for God. This is a lesson to teach us about the importance of holiness. Amen.